Welcome to uh, our presentation tonight. Um, our subject is what went wrong with the Christian religion. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the Antichrist subject in Bible prophecy. Uh, who is the Antichrist? What is the Antichrist? And uh, we're going to go a on a journey in Bible prophecy. And tonight we're going to actually both be in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and we're going to be in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And I think what you're going to find very fascinating with our study tonight is you will see how these books are interconnected with one another. They're like twin books. So you're going to see very clearly tonight how a prophecy that we'll look at in, in the book of Daniel is going to connect uh, in, a, in, a, in an incredible way with a prophecy that we find in the book of Revelation. Even though there were hundreds of years between these two books when they were written, uh, they were written in, in, in different periods of time and different places, and yet the same spirit that inspired the prophet Daniel inspired uh, John when he was on the island of Patmos. And so I think it will be very encouraging for you to see that interconnectedness of these prophecies. Okay, well, let's get right into it. What went wrong with the Christian religion? I want to start with a quote by Saint Pascal. I think you'll find this quite um, interesting and, uh, yeah, quite, quite to the point, actually. Uh, he says, Christianity started out in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It came to America and became an enterprise. That's a little bit some truth in there, isn't it? Um, over the last 2,000 years, Christianity has been on a journey, but the journey has not always been um, a, a very truthful one, to say it that way. Uh, certainly, you know, God has used the Christian movement to impact many, many lives across this globe. Certainly, many people have found hope in the scriptures. But as the message has spread, and as the message has really reached the furthest ends of this earth, uh, at the same time, things have happened. The message has been somewhat diluted. Uh, traditions and culture have come in. And I think San Pascal puts it very succinctly here when he says that it started out as a fellowship, but you know, eventually it became more like a philosophy, more like an, an, a culture and an institution, and even at times like an enterprise. And, and of course, we want to come back to what the scriptures teach. We want to come back to the original uh, uh, message that we have that was given to us by Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, there are some layers that we need to remove. And in order to do that, we also need to study Bible prophecy because Bible prophecy reveals to us some of the things that have led to this, some of the things that have, have occurred over the course of time that have caused Christianity uh, to become different than what it was uh, at its origin, in its, in its beginning. So, um, you know, we're also reminded here of Mahatma Gandhi that said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You know, it's important as we seek to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ that we become uh, students of Scripture so that we become a student of what Jesus was like. We look at his life and we seek through the power of the Holy Spirit to imitate the life of Jesus. Sadly, today, Christianity has been connected with a lot of other things, whether it's politics or it's culture or it's tradition or so many other things. But we need to connect Christianity again with the very source of power, which is the life and teachings of Jesus. Amen. 
So um, today, when you go and you look around in this world, there are many people that have different opinions about God, and those opinions can vary, uh, vary from very positive experiences to very negative experiences. And uh, I think uh, what, what, what makes people uh, have uh, different opinions about God is because what they have seen in Christianity. Uh, what they have encountered in Christianity. And that's why it's, my, it's a great passion that I have uh, as a communicator of the Bible to actually bring people into context with the passage of Scripture, with the Scriptures, with the life of Jesus. And to say, you know what, maybe you've experienced something in Christianity that has kind of put you off. Maybe you've experienced something within Christianity that, that has caused you to take a step uh, away from this whole thing. But, but I want you to take a fresh look at the pages of scripture and at the life of Jesus, because when we come to the very life of Jesus, we won't be disappointed. Amen? We won't be disappointed. And so um, we're going to go to the book of Daniel. That's where we're going to start. And uh, we're going to look at a prophecy that is found in the book of Daniel in the seventh chapter. And uh, this prophecy is going to be a prophecy that will lead us through history, and it will bring us to the arrival of the Antichrist. It will bring us to the arrival of a power that has um, uh, caused Christianity to, in many ways, move away from Christ and from the Word. And uh, in order to, to discover this power and, and this system that has been at work over time, we need to go to this prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And so you can turn there and follow along in your Bibles. I will also have some of these scriptures um, on the screen. Now, it's interesting. There's a principle in Bible prophecy that is important to understand. It's the principle of repetition and enlargement. And uh, for any of you that have ever, you know, taught in a school or, or perhaps a seminar or whatever it may be, you will understand this principle very well. When you are teaching something, um, it's very important that you teach something, but that you also then later repeat what you taught and then add a little bit more information. And so you go over some of the same things you've mentioned, and then you build on that, and then you do that again and again, and then it sticks with your students. Um, I've worked as a teacher, and I know very well how this functions. And uh, the same in Bible prophecy. It's very interesting that in Bible prophecy, God will give us a prophecy, and he will give us an outline of events, and then he will give us another prophecy that builds on that former prophecy. And it will go over some of the same things, but then we will get some more information added. And so this is a great way to remember uh, the truths of Scripture. And um, if you were here the second evening of this series, War of Thrones, you will remember that our subject was, um, uh, what does the future hold? And we looked at a prophecy in the book of Daniel in the second chapter. And you might remember that um, it was a prophecy that um, uh, showed us the different kingdoms that would come and fall beginning in Babylon. It was, you remember the dream of Nebuchadnezzar? He had a prophetic dream of this metal image made of different materials, and each material represented a different kingdom right from the time of Babylon all the way, da all the way down to our time. That is the foundational prophecy of the book of Daniel. That's like the first prof prophetic revelation in the book of Daniel. Now, as we have come to chapter 7, 
we're going to look at the second prophetic revelation that was given uh, in this, that is given in this book. Uh, between these chapters, it's a lot of a historical account of things that Daniel experienced while he was in Babylon. But as we come to chapter seven, Daniel has a dream. Last time it was Nebuchadnezzar that had the dream. Well, Daniel got the same dream and he interpreted the dream. But now in chapter seven, it's Daniel directly that gets the dream. And this prophecy in, in, in a very clear way is gonna build on that first one. And what happens in Daniel seven is that Daniel, he has a dream and in the dream, he sees four beasts that are coming up out of the sea. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the great thing about Bible prophecy is that we don't have to uh, spend time guessing what these beasts represent. We don't have to pass around a hat and everyone throws in their, writes down their, the, what they believe it is and throws in, you know, what, what they think it is. And then we shuffle the hat and then we pick out an answer. That's not what we need to do tonight because we can go to the actual text and the text itself tells us what the beasts represent. So within the same chapter, Daniel chapter 7, we are told what these four beasts that Daniel sees coming up out of the sea, we are told what they represent. And you can find it both in verse 17 and in verse 23. And the Bible says very clearly, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings or kingdoms. The beast is a kingdom. So the symbolism here is again that God is showing Daniel the kingdoms that are going to come. Just like in chapter 2, remember, he showed Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar the kingdoms that were going to come. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, he showed it through that metal man. Remember the metal image made of different material, and each material represented a different kingdom. In Daniel 7, he's revealing kingdoms again, but this time he's revealing each kingdom through a beast. Okay? Now, take notice of the description of the first beast. But actually, before we go to the description of the first beast, it's also interesting to note that these beasts, they come up out of the sea. Daniel sees them come up one after the other out of the sea. And sea also is a symbol in Bible prophecy. Now, it's interesting because you need to do a little bit of comparison between texts here. But if you go to the book of Revelation, again, the twin book of, of the book of Daniel, and in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and verse 15, we are told that the waters or the sea are a representation of people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So it's like Daniel is looking out on, the, on this great vast sea, which is like, we, we actually use that expression even in English, right? A sea of people, it's multitudes and nations and tongues. And then out of that come these four beasts, these four kingdoms arise. Now look at the description of the first kingdom in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 4. And the Bible says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. So the first beast that Daniel beholds in his dream is a lion with eagle, eagle's wings. Now, obviously, these are not real uh, creatures that exist. This is symbolism that is used in this dream. And this is a symbolic picture of a certain empire, a certain kingdom. Now, again, it's fascinating because we don't need to guess which kingdom this is because the Bible tells us. As a matter of fact, when we go to the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah lived um, uh, 
basically at the same time as Daniel. He was a prophet in Jerusalem when Jerusalem was besieged by Babylon. And do you know that he, he predicted the attack of Babylon on Jerusalem? And when he explained or when he prophesied about the attack that was going to occur, he referred to Babylon as a lion. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7, he says, the lion has come up from his thicket. He's talking about Babylon that is coming. And the destroyer of nations is on his way. And then a little bit down in the same passage there in verse 13, he says this, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. So he's referring to the lion and the eagle when he's describing the nation of Babylon. It's also interesting that archaeologists have noted that the, um, the, the lion with the wings was actually a symbol used by ancient Babylon. And so Babylon is represented here in Daniel chapter 7 by the lion with the eagle's wings. Now, again, here's the principle, right? The principle of repetition and enlargement. Because what was Babylon, where was Babylon in the metal image of Daniel chapter 2? It was the head of gold, right? When Daniel stood before the king and, and he said, you dreamt, you had a dream about this image that had a head of gold and chest and arms of silver and, and thighs of brass and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Then he said, you, king of Babylon, you represent, you are represented by the head of gold. So the head of gold was Babylon in the first prophetic uh, revelation. And, and the lion with the wings is also Babylon here in the second prophetic revelation in the book of Daniel. But what we're going to see is that this prophecy in Daniel 7, it's going to lead us through, the, through some of the same kingdoms, but it's going to bring us to, to some more information, particularly about the Antichrist power. So here's the first power, Babylon, uh, from 605 to 539 BC. Let's take a look at the second beast that is described. We're still in Daniel chapter 7, and we're now in verse 5. Verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. So we have a second beast coming on the scene. And if you look historically, the first beast was a representation of Babylon. And we know historically which nation conquered Babylon. That was none other than Medo-Persia. Now in Daniel chapter 2, Medo-Persia was represented by the chest and arms of silver, the second medal in this image. And here in Daniel chapter 7, it is represented by this beast described as a bear that is raised up on one side and has three ribs in his mouth. Medo-Persia reigned from 539 to 331 BC. And we continue in Daniel chapter 7 because now we come to a third beast described in verse 6. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings like a bird of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And when we come to this third nation or third kingdom, it is described as a leopard. Now, now you can start thinking about these nations and how they are represented. It's actually quite interesting because just like in Daniel 2, the medals actually fitted with these nations because, you know, you had the, the head of gold and, and Babylon was known as the golden city. And then you had uh, Medo-Persia. It was less rich than Babylon and silver is of less worth than, than, uh, than gold. And then you have, you know, uh, the thighs of brass and actually the, 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 uh, the Grecian army, they used a lot of brass in their... In their uh, 
um, uh, in their weaponry, uh, in their weapons. They were made of brass. And then you have the iron monarchy of Rome. So you see how the medals in Daniel 2 fit with the nations. And so here you can see things that fit with these nations. A lion is very kingly, the kingly power of Babylon. A bear has great strength. Medo-Persia was strong. And what do you think about when you think about a leopard? Well, a leopard has some speed, right? He's faster than, than, than those other two. And especially when you put four wings on its back. Here you have some very, a very fast creature. And what nation followed Medo-Persia? Well, it was none other than Greece. And remember that the Grecian army, they, they conquered in a rapid speed. Now, they were, you know, um, riding on horseback at that time, but it was only in a span of about eight years that they conquered the then-known world. Alexander the Great was the commander of the Grecian army, and uh, just with a rapid speed, they conquered many different kingdoms and nations. Uh, Greece lasted from BC, uh, from 331 to 168 BC. And actually, another interesting feature here of this prophecy is that when Alexander the Great died at a very young age, that he said, basically he had a son, but his son was very young, was only a child, and was too young to actually become ruler of the empire. And so what happened was his four generals, just like the, lep the leopard here has four heads, the four generals actually fought over his kingdom after Alexander the Great passed away. So there's interesting detail in these um, imagery, in these images regarding the kingdoms they represent. Well, now we come to a very interesting part of the prophecy. We come to the fourth beast that is described in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. And listen to the description here. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And, you know, the Bible tells us that this one was different from the other ones. You know, you have a beast that at least can be likened unto a lion, though it is a special lion that has its wings and everything, but it's still likened unto a lion. Then you have a second beast that is likened unto a bear, a third beast that is likened unto a leopard. But this beast doesn't even have any likeness of, of any animal creature that we know here on this earth. It's more like a, a, a dragon, you could say, a dragon-like beast that is represented here uh, to us as the fourth beast that comes up out of the sea and that Daniel beholds in his prophetic dream. Well, what was, the, what was the next nation or the next kingdom that followed after Greece? It was none other than Rome. And Rome in Daniel chapter 2, in the first prophecy of Daniel chapter 2, is represented by the iron legs in the image. And now in Daniel chapter 7, it's represented by the beast with the iron teeth. And, and this beast with iron teeth, it is just strong and it's, it's just crushing whatever comes in its way. And Rome was a very brutal, strong power lasting from 168 BC to uh, 476 AD. And what is interesting with Rome, it was under the power of Rome that Jesus himself was crucified in Jerusalem, right? Now, um, some years ago, I, uh, I was traveling and speaking and I was in the country of Germany and I was in a, in, in a city called Nuremberg. 
Uh, and uh, there were some friends of mine there, and after I had preached that weekend, uh, we took a little bit of time off on Sunday, and they took me actually into town, and as we were walking there in the center of that city, um, my friend said, hey, just look at those images up there, and it was actually the entrance of a, I believe it was a, a town, uh, town hall or something like that, and right there, as I looked at the images on that building, it was interesting because what you see here I don't know if you see it so clearly on the, on the picture, but it's actually a lion with wings. And right in front, you have a sculpture of uh, a man there which has a Babylonian attire, Babylonian clothing. Uh, typically Babylonian picture of, 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 uh, that is presented here. And on the other side, we have uh, a bear that actually has three ribs in its mouth. It's a little bit small. I don't think you can see it so clearly on the picture. And uh, again, a, a sculpture of a typical Medo-Persian looking individual. Now that was one entrance. And then if you walked a little bit on, there was another entrance. Here was the other entrance. And there you see the beast with the four heads and a typical sculpture of a, uh, a, a Grecian, you know, the Greece-looking uh, soldier person. And then on the other side, you have the beast with the ten horns and the, the, uh, the sculpture of a Roman soldier. So very interesting that uh, uh, obviously when, when, they put, when, the, when they put this, when they made this, uh, there was some uh, connection with the prophecy that you find in Daniel chapter 7 and these various nations that are represented. Okay, so, so we've, looked at, we've looked at these four beasts and what they represent, the four nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And now we're going to focus in on the fourth beast. And here we're going to find something very interesting because in Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, the Bible says the ten horns are what? What does it say? Are ten kings. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So out of Rome would come ten kingdoms, just like the beast has ten horns. Well, if you look at the um, division of the Roman Empire, in other words, when the Roman Empire was conquered by different nations, when you take the Western Roman Empire, because you have the Eastern Roman Empire and you have the Western Roman Empire, when you take the Western Roman Empire and you look at the division of the Western Roman Empire, it's very interesting that it did end up in 12 tribes, 12 different tribes, as you see here on the map. Now, what took place, or, or 10, sorry, not 12, 10, 10 divisions, just like it says that the 10 horns would be come up out of this fourth beast. Now, once you have your focus on the divided Roman Empire, those, those 10 nations, something else happens. Now, now, the prophecy tells us exactly what would happen. Look at verse 8, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. It says, I was considering the horns. So he's looking at those 10 horns on the fourth beast. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So Daniel, in his dream, again, he sees the first beast, the lion with the wings. It's a representation of Babylon. Then comes up a second beast, the bear that is raised up on one side with the three ribs in its mouth. It's Medo-Persia. Then he sees a fourth beast, the leopard with the four heads and the four wings, a representation of Greece. Then he sees a ferocious beast that cannot even be likened unto anything in the animal kingdom. It is a representation 
of Rome. And then he looks at the ten horns on the fourth beast, and we are told that these are the ten kings that come out of Rome. In other words, the division of the Western Roman Empire. And then as he's seen that, he sees a little horn coming up, and the little horn pushes out three of those ten horns. And this little horn, it says, is speaking pompous words or great words. And a little bit further in the text, in Daniel chapter 7, it says that he speaks great words against the Most High. In other words, against God. The power that we are looking at here, this little horn that is coming up, is none other than the Antichrist power of Bible prophecy. And there are actually various texts in the Bible that talk about this very power that we are looking at right here Uh, in Daniel chapter 7. So let us together look at the identification marks that we have to find out what power this is, this little horn that is coming up. Well, the little horn, it arose among the ten horns. In other words, it came out of the Roman Empire. So if we are going to identify tonight, based on Bible prophecy, the Antichrist power, the little horn power, we cannot be talking about some power that rose up in New Zealand or Australia. We cannot be talking about some power that rose up in the United States of America or in South America. We cannot be talking about some power that rose, up, that rose out of some nation in Africa. No, if we, if we are looking at what the little horn is, who the little horn is, it is a power that, among, that arose among the ten horns, or we should expect that it came out of the Roman Empire. After the breakup of the Roman Empire, this power emerges. Are you with me? Well, another identification mark, I I mentioned it already, it arose after the ten horns. In other words, it came after the Roman Empire's breakup, okay? Well, let's, let's look at some more identification marks. It was different from the ten horns. The Bible tells us that, uh, you know, it had eyes like a man and it was speaking pompous words against God. And what we're going to find out in just a moment is that this is not just a political power. This is not just a kingly power, but this is also a religious power. He's speaking words against God. A little bit further in the text, it it tells us that he persecutes the saints of the Most High. He's persecuting God's people. Another very interesting and important historical detail here is that when that little horn comes up, he pushes out three of the other horns. And he displaced, in other words, or defeated three kingdoms. And and this little horn, this power that we're looking at, actually defeated three nations. It was the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths these three kingdoms that were removed by this power that is now coming up. And maybe some of you are already connecting in your mind and you're thinking, yeah, which power was coming up out of the Roman Empire? Which power rose up around this time of this division? Which power was not only a political power, but a religious power? Which power defeated the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, and the Heruli? Well, there's only one power that really matches all those identification marks, and it is none other than the papal power of Rome. Rome basically has two phases. You have what we call pagan Rome, pagan Rome which lasted for many centuries, the Caesars of Rome. But then out of pagan Rome, there came a new power and it was called papal Rome. Papal Rome, the power of the the church of Rome. And some of you may be thinking, yeah, but how on earth can you say that the Antichrist of Bible prophecy is a religious power? Isn't, this, isn't the power of Rome about, about, about promoting Jesus? Isn't the power of Rome about bringing about an awakening in the religious world? 
Well, just hang on and let's look at some of these identification marks and what actually happened in history and what is actually happening today. But let me say, let me just say right at the outset of, of, our, of, of, of this further study that we're going to do, I am in no ways here uh, to criticize individuals that are belonging to a certain organization or church. As a matter of fact, I can tell you that my parents were themselves Roman Catholics. As a matter of fact, they grew up in the Netherlands. They were Roman Catholics all of their life, um, and uh, m most of their life at least. And my mother later became um, a, a Protestant Christian. But, but I have a lot of friends in the Netherlands. I have a lot of friends worldwide that belong to the papal church. So we're not, we're not at all in any means uh, singling out individuals here. What I'm doing is I'm showing you from Bible prophecy a system that emerged historically and that will again gain traction and power in the end of time that is misrepresenting the character of God and the scriptures of God. And uh, this is actually a very interesting subject because when you look at the Protestant Reformation, there were many that studied the prophecy of Daniel 7 and identified this power in the same way that we are identifying it now. Now take notice, this is from history. Um, uh, it says the following, to the succession of the Caesars, so in other words, the rulers of the pagan Roman Empire, came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. Now, who is Constantine? Constantine was the first Caesar in Rome that became a Christian. Now, when I say he became a Christian, um, you know, I don't want to judge his motives in any way, but just from, from observing what happened, it almost seemed more like a political move than anything else. There were a lot of Christians in his realm. There were a lot of uh, pagans in his realm. And so he thought, okay, how can I merge these two together? And so he made it a Christian empire. He actually took his arm and he said, he marched them through the river and he says, okay, you're baptized now. And he, he made it a Christian, but, but when he made it a, Christ, a Christian nation, a lot of the pagan traditions were brought into the church. You worshiped one day, on one day you worshiped the sun god, well now we'll just worship the sun day. And so many things were transitioned. At one point they're worshiping all these pagan gods, and now they're worshiping Christian saints. And so, and so it's a merge of paganism and Christianity what happened in the days of Constantine. Now, Constantine wanted to strengthen his empire in the east, and so he actually transferred his capital from Rome in Italy to Constantinople uh, in, 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 in what we modernly now know as Turkey, Istanbul. And so he moves his capital there, and guess what? Now there's a vacancy of power in Rome, and guess who receives the power in Rome? Well, you, get, you could guess it. It's the papacy. It's the Bishop of Rome. The Bishop of Rome, which is a church leader, now is also given uh, stately authority. And that's not a good thing to do, to give stately authority or to a religious figure. Well, um, Stanley's History, page 40, puts it this way. The popes filled the place uh, of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the diseased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. They were given the power right there in Rome. Constantine, the days of Constantine, was really a, 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 in many ways a very challenging time for the church because the church had grown, the church had become influential. And sometimes, you know, when the church becomes influential, it's not only good news. 
because when it became influential on, on, a, on, on a platform in the Roman Empire and it became influential in politics, now the Christian church was changing. A lot of traditions were coming in and things were not as they were before. This is actually a painting. It's called The Donation of Constantine. And uh, you can see Constantine kneeling to, uh, to the Pope that ruled at that time. And here he's like kind of giving the Pope the authority to rule over the Roman Empire, the, 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 the fallen Roman Empire and the tribes that uh, emerged out of the Roman Empire. You know, when you look at church history, you can really divide it into some segments. And to just make it kind of easy for us tonight, I want, to, I want you to take notice of these kind of three phases, we could call them. The first phase being the formation. Jesus, you know, 2,000 years, years ago, he called 12 disciples, and he equipped them, and he trained them, and he sent them out to preach the gospel. And this was really the forming of the church, the early church. They went out, they preached under the power of the Holy Spirit, and many churches were started across the Mediterranean uh, area, and, and, and the church was growing. It was like wildfire. They were being persecuted, but, but you know, as one writer put it, the, the blood of the martyrs was like the seed of the gospel. It was just growing and growing, and they were fervent in Scripture and in many ways dedicated to what they believed in. But then things started to change. And especially around the time of Constantine, when, when Christianity be, became now the formal you know, um, religion of the empire, and as traditions started coming in and paganism was merged with Christianity, we come into a phase what we could call the deformation. We go from formation to deformation. And this was a long period. It was like, it's like going driving through a long, dark tunnel. And for hundreds of years, for centuries, much of the truth that was given to the disciples in the days of Jesus was now lost, bit by bit. And, and, and more and more, uh, these religious powers, they gained authority, but the scriptures were covered up and buried by the traditions of man. And that's why the point came where there was a need of what we could call a reformation. And you've all heard about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And it was a response to what the church had gone through for many centuries. They wanted to come back to the scriptures. You might remember the phrase, the phrase, sola scriptura. It means the Bible only. You know, and, and they wanted to live by faith alone, and, and they wanted the scriptures, and they wanted to live to the glory of God alone. They didn't want to confess their sins to a human mortal being like a priest. They wanted to go directly to Jesus. You know, and there were many things they discovered in the Word of God, and there was an awakening and a preaching of the Scriptures once again. So this is just three phases that are easy to remember. The church is formed, the church goes through the Dark Ages, the deformation, but then comes the Reformation. Now, what was taking place during this deformation period? Let me just give you a couple of uh, quotes here that are actually, uh, some of them taken actually from uh, papal sources here about what actually the papacy or the Church of Rome taught, okay? So this is one of them. It says, seek where you will through heaven and earth and you will find but one created being who can forgive the sinner. That extraordinary being is the priest, the Catholic priest. So it's very clear that the Church of Rome teaches that in order for you to have your sins forgiven, where do you need to go? You go to the priest, right? You, you, you are confessing to an other mortal human being. You're not going directly to Jesus, you're going to the priest. Now, there's something interesting about the word antichrist. 
The word antichrist has two meanings. The word anti has two meanings. The word anti can mean to be opposed or against something, but the word anti can also mean to take the place of something. Are you with me? Antichrist is not only a power that opposes the teachings of Jesus, Antichrist is also a power that seeks to take the place of Jesus. And this, this then becomes a little bit more clear when you study the Antichrist in Bible prophecy. It is actually a religious power that is seeking to take the very place that Jesus is only to have. You know, here another one. Look at this. The Pope or the Bishop of Rome is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. Ex-cathedral. Uh, everything that comes out right of the mouth of, of the Pope is, 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 is by definition, it's here. It is it's like Jesus Christ himself speaking. This is what they actually teach. You know, uh, the Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were, God, and listen to this, and the vicar of God. In other words, taking the very place of God. But there is no human being on the planet of this earth that can take the place of God, that can take the place of Jesus Christ. None. I mean, you can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and there's no indication that anyone would take that role here on earth. Amen? Um, here, another one of their letters here. Um, it says, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. That's a very strong language, but, but you go into the teachings of Catholicism and you will find that this is exactly what the Roman church stands for. You know, John Acton, he put it very well. He said the following, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Isn't that true? And whenever you give a human being, a fallen, sinful, mortal human being, if you give them too much power, guess what's going to happen? Power will corrupt. We are not made to have that kind of a power. And what happened is the Bishop of Rome was given so much power, not only religious power, but he was given political power. And when you give a religious power, political power and authority, well, you're in for some trouble. And that's exactly what the Dark Ages reveal. If you study the Dark Ages, you will find that it was a period of darkness because of the corruption that existed on a high level within the Church of Rome. Now, we're going to come a little bit back to this with what Rome has done and is doing, but we're going to take a little bit of an intermission here in the prophecy, and a very important one, because I want you to take notice what Daniel 7 reveals after Daniel has seen the four beasts, after he has seen the ten horns on the fourth beast, and after he has seen this little horn power that is now coming up and, and, and seeking to rule the world. Take notice what he sees next. And this is, very, this is an encouraging part of the prophecy. Daniel chapter 7, and look at verse uh, 14. Verse, 14 verse, verse 13 and 14. He says, I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." 
Now, you might remember, if you remember Daniel chapter 2, right? You had the different metals of the different kingdoms. And what happened when you came to the bottom of that image? The feet of iron and clay. Then there was a stone, remember, that hit the image, and the image crumbled to pieces, and that stone represented the kingdom of God, the coming of Christ. Now, here it's interesting. Daniel chapter 7 the repetition and enlargement, the prophecy that builds on the first revelation. Again, you see the same kingdoms, but we have different information now given. We have a different focus in the prophecy of Daniel 7. The Antichrist comes into the picture, but it also closes here with, again, the kingdom of God on display. The kingdom of God is on display. Now, the kingdom of God here is brought to us or it is, um, uh, it, it is the, the very central, central figure within the kingdom of God here is none other than the Son of Man. And uh, going back here, it says it right there in verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds. And he's, he's then represented before the Ancient of Days. You know, the, the, the expression Son of Man, which we find here in Daniel chapter 7, is an expression that comes back many, many times in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, again and again and again, we have the expression, son of man, son of man, son of man. It's an expression that Jesus used himself to talk about who he was. He would say, the son of man does such and such. The son of man has come for this or that. And when he's referring to himself as the son of man, those that were accustomed with the Old Testament scriptures knew exactly where he was getting that phrase from, because it's only one place in the Old Testament scriptures. It's in Daniel chapter chapter 7. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is, he is referring to the very revelation given in the prophecy of Daniel 7. The phrase Son of Man, pointing to Jesus, appears 81 times in the Greek New Testament Gospels. 81 times. It's the expression that appears more than any other um, uh, way of describing Jesus. This was his favorite way of describing himself. I am the Son of Man. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is, comes after all of these other kingdoms. So you have the kingdom of Babylon, Greece, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then this Antichrist power, this, this papal Roman power, and then you have Jesus as the Son of Man. And it's interesting because when you study the Son of Man in the Gospels, and you look at the characteristics of the kingdom of Christ, you will find that the characteristics of the kingdom of Christ stand in stark contrast to the characteristics of the kingdoms that we have looked at in Daniel 7. Let me, look, let me give you a little bit of a taste of this. These are just a couple of verses from the Gospels that talk about the Son of Man, okay? So Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, it says, the Son of Man, and this is Jesus speaking about himself. He says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. All right, King Nebuchadnezzar, did you have a place to lay your head? Did you have a golden palace? Oh yes. Uh, King of Medo-Persia, Darius, Cyrus, did you have a place to lay your head? Oh yes, Alexander the Great, how many, how many palaces did you have? The Caesars of Rome, how many places did you have? You know, and now here we come to a different kind of king, a different kind of kingdom. Jesus says, I'm the son of man, and guess what? I have nowhere to lay my head. A different kind of king indeed. 
Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now that's interesting in comparison with what we just learned about that little horn power. What does that little horn power do? It's an earthly power that says we can forgive sins. But then the Son of Man comes and Jesus says, the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. There's no mortal kingdom, a mortal king, or, or mortal priest that can forgive sins. Jesus is the only one that can do that because he died for our sins. Amen? In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed and after three days rise again. So here we have a king that is willing to put himself in harm's way. Here we have a king that is willing to step down from his throne. And he is willing to enter into a world of suffering. And he's willing to take upon himself the form of a human being and become the likeness of human flesh and blood and to die that death, that, that ignominious death on the cross on behalf of each one of us. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 9, it says, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So the Son of Man, Jesus, he rose from the grave. Luke chapter 6 and verse 5, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to study the subject of Sabbath on a future night, but it's interesting. The Sabbath was, was a, a sacred time in the week where God wanted to dwell with his people. And, and Jesus, being the Son of Man, is also Lord of the Sabbath. He wants to spend time with his creation and with his created beings. This is not a king that is lofty on his throne and just like not even caring about who is out there in his empire. No, this is a, this is a king that steps into suffering but also wants to be with his, the subjects of his kingdom. He wants to spend time with them. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Luke chapter 7 verse 34, the Son of Man, and this is what was said about the Son of Man, uh, says the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a gluten and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said about him, you know? You're, 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 just, you're just hanging out with the wrong, wrong kind of people. So what is Jesus again showing here as the Son of Man? He's willing to be with those that are on the margins of society. Amen? As the king, he is seeking out those that need him most. What a difference between the kingdom of God, ruled by the Son of Man, and the kingdoms of this world. I don't know about you, but I cast my lot with the kingdom of Christ. Amen? I want to belong to the Son of Man. I mean, this is a real king, what do you say? A real king that is willing to do everything for us and willing to establish a kingdom where everyone can experience the joy of salvation and the joy of fellowship with himself. In John chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And this was a prophecy. This, these were the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus when Nicodemus, that religious leader, came to him by night. He said, you know, you remember Moses that had to lift up that snake in the wilderness? When, when people were being bitten by snakes, he had to lift up a snake. And, and as, if they looked at that snake, they would be healed. This was, this was a, sy a symbol, a prophecy of Jesus that would become sin. He would take sin upon himself. He would be lifted up on the cross, but everyone that would put their eyes on him would receive healing and restoration. And then John chapter 5, verse 26 and 27, another reference to the Son of Man. Listen to this. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also. Listen to this. Because he is who? the Son of Man. So who has the final authority? Who, has, who is going to, 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 to um, be there in the final account of all things? 
Who is going to execute the final judgment? It's none other than the Son of Man, my friends. It's Jesus. It's not the King of Babylon. It's not the King of Medo-Persia. It's not, it's not the Pope in the Vatican. It's ultimately Jesus Christ that has the authority. Amen? Well, and here you see this comparison of these kingdoms and powers. And you know, we can, we can add the kingdoms of this world today. We can add the, 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 all the kingdoms and, and thrones and political uh, uh, parties and, and rulers of this day. None come even close to be compared with what Jesus was and is for us. Amen? You know, there's this interesting story uh, during the Protestant Reformation. There were two preachers, and they were preaching in Bohemia, which is uh, the current day known as the country of Czech Republic. And they were preaching there. They were preaching their heart out on the scriptures. They were confronting the powers of Rome. But then they were told that they no longer could preach. They were told that they could not speak uh, and, and, and teach the scriptures any longer. Well, it turns out that they were not only preachers, but they were also artists. And so what they do, the two of them, they went to the marketplace and each began to paint a painting. One painted the Pope in all his prestigious and pompous and glorious clothing, and the other painted Jesus riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. And you know what they say? A picture speaks a thousand words, amen? And so here you have two pictures, and that's exactly what the Bible prophecy presents. A picture of the powers of this world and a picture of the true King, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, your Savior, your best friend. And we need to make a decision. Are we going to follow the powers of this world or are we going to follow the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, which died in our, in our place? Well, now let's, in the last minutes that we have together, let's link this now with a prophecy that we find in the book of Revelation. I told you that the book of Daniel has a twin book, and that's the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. And I want you to take notice of the imagery in the prophecy of Revelation 13, and take notice of the very language that is used here that reminds us of the prophecy that we read in Daniel chapter 7. So Revelation chapter 13, and beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw a beast rising up out of the what? Out of the sea. Okay, so what did we learn about a beast? Well, we learned already about a beast, that this is, this is some, some power, some, some earthly authority, some kingdom or king. And here we have a beast power rising up. And what did we learn about the sea? Well, we already found out the sea is a representation of multitudes of people, a sea of people. And so just like in Daniel 7, we've already identified what a beast is. And, 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 and now as we come to Revelation chapter 13, we apply the same principle that we learned in Daniel 7 to the prophecy here. And so here we have another power coming up on the scene. Revelation chapter 13. Now take notice of the description of this beast in Revelation chapter 13. We go to verse two. Look at this. It says, now the beast which I saw was like a what? Leopard. Now, have you seen a leopard anywhere before? Yes, Daniel seven, right? His feet were like the feet of a what? Have you seen a bear before? Daniel chapter seven, right? And his mouth like the mouth of a what? Lion. Have you seen a lion before? If you don't answer, I'm gonna have to start all over again, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so where's the lion? Daniel 7, right? 
and the dragon, ah, could that be that fourth beast? The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Isn't that interesting? Revelation chapter 13 is like an, an amalgamation of the four beasts that we learned about in Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel, Daniel was written uh, several hundreds of years before Christ, and the book of Revelation was written in the first century, but the same Holy Spirit was inspiring Daniel, and the same Holy Spirit was inspiring John. Amen? And so we see the linkage of these incredible prophecies. So when we come to Revelation 13, we apply the same principle that we apply when we study Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. It's the principle of repetition and enlargement. Daniel chapter 2 has given us some information. Daniel chapter 7 gives us a lot of the same information, but it expands. It, it tells us more about what's going to take place. As we come now to Revelation chapter 13, again, this is expanding upon what we have learned in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And what Revelation 13 does is it picks it up right where Daniel chapter 7 left us with that little horn. Because when you study this beast in Revelation chapter 13, you'll find out that it's the same power as that little horn there in Daniel chapter 7. Take notice what it actually says about this beast. In verse 7, it says, It was also given to him, to the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. In other words, this is a religious political power that is making war against God's people. He is persecuting God's people. This was the same thing that was said about the little horn in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7 and verse 21, it says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. You see, it's talking about the same power here. Look at this, Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. Look at another characteristic of this power. It says, there was given to him authority to act for how long? 42 months. That's interesting. So a time period uh, is linked here in Revelation chapter 13 to this power that would rule. Now, if you look at this period of time, we need to apply, again, the... Um, um, the day for a year principle. We talked about this earlier when we studied the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. For those of you that were here, when we studied that prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 about the Messiah that was going to come, I introduced to you a very important uh, lesson in Bible prophecy, and that is that when you have a prophetic time that is mentioned, um, that you need to take a prophetic day, uh, and that actually equals to a literal year. Uh, in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. It fit perfectly with the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, and we see it over and over again that this is a principle that we can apply with accuracy. This is a principle that we find in the Bible itself in Ezekiel 4.6, Numbers 14.34. Now, if we take that principle, that a prophetic day equals a literal year, then 42 months actually becomes a time period of 1260 years because you have um, um, 42 months so 42 times 30 uh, would be 1260 but then 1260 that would be 1260 days but then if you apply then the day year principle you would have 1260 years and uh, in, in biblical reckoning, we don't have the one uh, month being 30 days and one being 31. In biblical reckoning, the months are actually 30 days, which makes it a bit easier here. So we have 1260 years that this power would rule. Now, question, did the papal power, the Church of Rome, rule for that period? And the answer is a definite yes. 
Now, what happens? A church can say whatever it wants. A church can preach whatever it wants. But if a church is connected to the state authority, well, then everything changes because then they have a political power that they can, they have another kind of leverage upon people, right? And when you look at the Dark Ages, it was exactly the period of 1260 years that the Church of Rome was connected to the state power and they were able to persecute those that disagreed with their teaching. Uh, Fagilius, which was one of the uh, popes at that time, ascended the papal chair in the year 538 AD under the, listen, this is important, under the military protection of Belsarius. So now the Pope is not just an authority on religious matters, he's an authority on state matters. He has the military protection, the military backing him up. And far from 538, we enter into a period of 1260 years of papal persecution, which lasted all the way until 1798. Now, what happened during this period? Well, let me read to you here from some of the sources of, of, of that are, uh, you know, uncovering what, what, what was happening in this, in, the, in this very period of, of time. It says, the church may by, by divine act, rights confiscate the property of what they called heretics. Now, now, you know what a heretic is, right? A heretic, that is someone that does not agree with the teaching of the church. So Rome says, everyone that does not agree with our teaching becomes a heretic. And so they say, the church has the, div the, the, the divine rights to confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, condemn them to the flames. And by the way, thousands and thousands, not just thousands, millions of people died during these dark ages just for disagreeing with the Church of Rome. It's kind of a forgotten segment of history in many ways. They condemn them to the flames. The right to inflict the severest penalties, even death, belongs to the church. There is no graver offense than heresy, therefore it must be rooted out. That the Roman Catholic Church has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. If we really look into the matters, my friends, and we look at what happened there during the Dark Ages in the Old World, in Europe, there were so many lives that were lost. People could lose their lives merely for owning a Bible. It was not, you were not permitted to have a Bible because only the priest could interpret the scripture and often the services were only in Latin. So, and, 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 and many of the poor people didn't understand Latin. And so they had no access to truth, but they were not allowed to actually own the scriptures for themselves. You could lose your life over that. Your property could be confiscated over that. If you would not partake in the mass, that was enough for you to be condemned to the flames. Many, many people lost their lives during these dark ages. Now, Martin Luther, you remember the story, Martin Luther, he was a monk and he started out as a very committed monk. But as he looked at the corruption of Rome, and as he started reading his Bible and experiencing the power of salvation in the Gospels, he came to a point where he said the following. He said, already I feel greater liberty in my heart, for at last I know that the Pope is Antichrist and that his throne is that of Satan himself. He recognized from the scriptures, 
from the prophecies that this power was identified as the antichrist power of Bible prophecy. And my friends, I, we're, we're, not just, we're not just a small group of people that believes this. Actually, when you look at the Protestant Reformation and you look at John Wesley and you look at Calvin and Swingley and Martin Luther and all of these heralds of the Reformation, they all studied the scriptures and came to the same conclusion. The power of Rome is identified there, the little horn, this power is not other than the Antichrist himself, the Antichrist power. Now, we've looked at it so far from a historical context, from a historical picture, but what does actually um, the, the, the Bible tell us in Revelation about this power uh, in our very days and age? Well, just, 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 just wrapping up this 1260-year period, um, eventually that came to an end, and, and, and Revelation chapter 13 verse 3 says, I saw one of his heads as it had been slain, and um, indeed, there was a mortal wound inflicted upon the papal power after those 1260 years, which happened in the year 1798. It was the murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 that gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city and putting an end to the papal temporal power. And um, the aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile to Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope they declared had resigned. That's what they thought. They thought, now it's over. The Pope, this papal power that has ruled the world for so many hundreds of years, for so many centuries, now we've done away with him. We have separated church and state once again. And they thought it was all over. In 1798, Heber Che, which was under the command of Napoleon, he made his entrance into Rome. He abolished the papal government and established a secular one. But Bible prophecy tells us that this was not the end of the story for the papacy. Even though their, 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 their government or their, their power structure was very affected in 1798, the Bible tells us that the fatal wound would be healed. In other words, this power would, would come back again and would again have great power in the latter days of earth's history. Bible prophecy tells us. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 13, verse 3 tells us something very significant. It says, and all the world marveled and what? Followed the beast. They marveled and they followed the beast. Now, now we're, we're not at that point of time yet, but the Bible prophecy predicts that a time will come where this Roman power will become so forceful in our world, will su have such a great voice that the nations of this world will unite under its power. It is interesting to note that it was not long ago that the Pope himself spoke to the Senate here in the United States, which is something unheard of when you think about it. United States of America, a Protestant nation, but here we already see things changing. Many nations are now listening to the voice of this religious and more and more becoming a political voice in our world today. And Bible prophecy predicts that this power will be on the rise as we get closer and closer to the end of time. Now, in closing, I wanna show you something fascinating. And just a couple more minutes and we're finished here, but I want you to take notice of something. In Revelation chapter 13, when you see this beast power coming on the scene, the great question that needs to be answered is the following question, who will you worship? And that's really the question of the book of Revelation. Will you worship a human institution, a human devised uh, kingdom and authority, or you, will you worship the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, the true king? And you know what? This power, this beast power in Revelation chapter 13, it is a perfect counterfeit of Jesus. 
Everything that it does, it is counterfeiting the very works of Jesus. Take notice of this. It says in Revelation 13, verse 1, that I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. And when did Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry, what did he do? He was baptized in the river of Jordan, and he came up out of the water. Just like Jesus comes up out of the water, so this beast comes up out of the water. Jesus, how long was his ministry from his baptism at the River Jordan to his crucifixion on that cross outside of Jerusalem on the hill of Calvary? It was 42 months, my friends. It was 1260 days, three and a half years. Now, of course, we've looked here that this is a symbolic, prophetic period of time, but, but nevertheless, the imagery is just striking that it would rule for 42 months, the very same time period that Jesus would rule that Jesus would minister. So it's a perfect counterfeit of the works of Christ. Now, what does it say about the beast of Revelation chapter 13? It would rise out of the water, it would rule for 42 months, and then it would receive a mortal wound, a deadly wound. Well, Jesus, after the three and a half years of ministry on this earth, received a deadly wound. Do you see how this beast is counterfeiting the works of Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us that the beast, even though he received a deadly wound, that the deadly wound would be healed. Just like Jesus rose from the grave and his deadly wound was healed. And then finally, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. And now here's the thing, my friends, either you worship the counterfeit or you worship the Christ. Because if you have your name in the book of life, then you are worshiping the Son of Man. You are worshiping Jesus. Amen? And I just want to say tonight, don't go for the counterfeit. Amen? It's a fraud. It's a counterfeit. And, and, and this power is doing all that it can to look like Christ and act like Christ and speak like Christ and forgive sins like Christ, but it cannot do those things. There's only one that can forgive your sins. There's only one that rules on the throne, uh, in the throne room of heaven. There's only one that has died for you, that has created you, and that is coming back for you, and that is Jesus Christ. Don't go for an earthly power. Go for the Son of Man. Amen? And so as we identify the Antichrist, and we have seen very clearly from Scripture that this power would emerge, we're going to look at a future night, uh, some more interesting prophecies as to what this power will do. But for tonight, I just want to say that we can be sure that when we put our allegiance with Jesus, that we're on the winning side. Amen? We are on the winning side. And this world will be tested in the end of time. Who we, will we worship? That's the great question. But tonight, each one of us can decide to put our loyalty and to, and to put our allegiance on the side of Christ, the very one that has died and risen for us and will soon some, come again. Let us pray in closing as we dedicate our lives to Christ tonight. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for being with us. We want to thank you so much for the amazing prophecies of the book of Daniel and Revelation. And Lord, as tonight we have studied the Antichrist, I believe that we can say with confidence tonight that we've not only studied the Antichrist, we have studied the Christ. We have looked, Lord, at the counterfeit, yes, but we've also looked at the real deal. And Lord, tonight we just want to, we just want to reaffirm our faith in the Son of Man, in Christ, and in His kingdom and kingship. And Lord, we thank you that we can belong to you. And we pray that you will do your work in us as we prepare to meet you very soon. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Let all of God's people say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.